Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Very special guest today, Seamus Mullen. He's an award-winning New York chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author known for his inventive yet approachable Spanish cuisine. He's also a leading authority on health and wellness nowadays. He's the author of Real Food Heals and Hero Food. He basically became diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and saw that this autoimmune disease forced him to look at his relationship with food and rethink it. And we're going to talk about that today because his recovery story is amazing. And there's a lot of people going through this out there. So, so excited to get into the details of your health journey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I want to tell the audience briefly, I have a friend I grew up with, uh, Chef Contos, uh, uh, who had struggled with being diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, told her she was going to be in a wheelchair. Uh, I suspected possible thyroid uh, problems. And she called me up and I had been skeptical, Seamus, to call, and I, she's fine with me telling the story. I was afraid to call her and tell her what I had learned about food because she was a chef. And I Mm -hmm. was like, she's not going to hear it. Like she's going to, it's just going to start. So like, she's a wonderful person, but I just didn't want to be that person, you know? And, and woulda, coulda, shoulda, it's all about timing for people. But I was afraid to approach my very gourmet chef friend who I was like, there's no way in hell she's going to listen to me about grains or anything with regards to that. So I'm sure, you know, you had your own experience there, obviously, of having to detach from a life of kind of probably using anything and everything with cooking. But before we go there, let's start with what was the day when you were like, something's wrong with me? Oh, man. You know, in hindsight, looking back, and there you, you always have so much clarity when you look back and you start to thread the needle and, and everything starts to make sense. In hindsight, it was probably when I was like four years old. It was probably the very beginning of my life. And ironically, uh, my, my early childhood, all the way through my teenage years and, and my early 20s, I had this really uh, strange love-hate antagonistic relationship with food. I, m- most food made me feel like shit. Can I, can I swear? I guess I just did. Oh, oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Most food made me feel like shit. And, um, and yet I loved food. So I had this really, you know, this, this, this bad relationship where there, there are all these foods that were making me feel terrible. Uh, yet I loved them and I loved eating. And I just started to accept that as like, as normalcy. I, I had, but I, I mean, I definitely had like much further down the road in my late twenties. Um, I had a moment where it was very clear there was something severely wrong with me and something wrong with my health. But it, it was a long process to get to that point. Um, what were some of the symptoms that you would experience when you say you felt like shit? Well, when I was younger, I every time I ate food, I, you know, every time I ate after almost every meal, I was bloated and like my my gut was distended and I felt terrible. Um, I had trouble sleeping if I ate too late and my, my parents were very well-meaning and they're great people and they were sort of progressive of the time, but they were kind of following the predominant wisdom of the 1970s as to what constitutes healthy food. And we pretty much ate out of the Moosewood cookbook nearly every night. And it was a lot of grains, 
Um, it was a lot of dairy. It, it was uh, a lot of tofu. It was a lot of tempeh. And we did eat meat. Um, sorry, I'm in New York City, so you can hear the classic sirens. Um, we did eat meat that we raised on our own family farm. But for the most part, the diet was very carbohydrate-based. And, uh, you know, my, my, my folks didn't they, – they had the best intentions for my brother and for me. But the reality was that a lot of the food that I was eating, I was reacting really negatively to. Um, and then down the line, you know, as I, I – I, um, in my twenties, I started to have kind of lethargy and low energy. And then that was followed by, um, the first real sign that there was something severely, you know, fishy in Denmark was that I, I got a, a tumor in the back of my neck and it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And, um, when I went to my conventional doctor, they ran my bloods and saw that my liver enzymes were really elevated. My white blood cell count was really high. And they thought I might have cancer, and so they carved it out and biopsied it, and they're, you know, it was benign. And they said, "Well, sorry, we don't know what that is. You're fine now." And that was the beginning of like things were really, really starting to slip downhill. And then after that, it became a lot of like it, I started to develop a lot of uh, aches, aches and different joints, which then progressed to severe acute attacks in my joints, in my shoulders, and in my knee, in my hip. And those would usually land me in the hospital, and they were extremely, extremely painful. And not, not to go back into to crappy times, but so that we can identify and understand, what does that feel like? Because I don't know what that feels like. What, what, what does that mean to have an attack? Well, the first ones I had were in my early 20s, actually even maybe late teens, where I would wake up one morning, and it literally felt like my arm had been ripped off at the shoulder. And I could not I couldn't move my arm. Like I could not move my arm. Uh, and the first couple of times that happened, um, I mean, I went to the I went to the emergency room and I was X-rayed. It was you know they asked me what did you do? What did you do? What happened? What was the what was the trauma? And there was no trauma. I hadn't done anything to my shoulder. Um, and and I remember the time telling my mom, and my mom said, "Oh, your grandmother has bursitis. You've just got bursitis. It runs in the family." And, um, so for, for a little while, I thought it was this thing called bursitis that the bursal sacs in my, in my shoulders were slightly inflamed. And the odd thing is that it would, so it it would come on, I'd wake up in excruciating pain. Um, and then it would usually be gone within two or three days. So there's just this huge flare up that's just makes you incapacitated in whatever area and it can, can it switch areas? So what would it be? The next attack would be somewhere else or. So my, my, I, for, for quite a while it was happening in my right shoulder. Um, and then it would happen in my, uh, right pinky finger. Um, if you can imagine the sensation that someone's just smashed your pinky finger with a hammer, um, that's kind of what it felt like. And then, um, my left knee, uh, my left hip was, that was the, so the, the, when I finally, when I was finally diagnosed, it was a flare up in my left hip that, that led to my diagnosis. But that was, um, that was, um, by far the most painful, the most painful, um, uh, presentation of it. And for now, nowadays, everyone, because we're all glued to MSNBC, we all know what rheumatoid arthritis is. And there's a pharmaceutical ad every every 10 minutes for an RA drug. Um, but you know, 15 years ago, it was a pretty, um, I mean, I had never heard of it when I was diagnosed with RA. I certainly thought 
arthritis was a disease of the elderly. That's right. I think most people do. They think it's a degenerative aging disease. Um, but this is autoimmune. So let's just make that clear for everybody. Yeah. And so, I, you know, the confusion is, is that it's often, it's often, mis- it's, it's often um, misconstrued as being, being osteoarthritis, which is if you really, uh, to, rheumatoid arthritis, the arthritic um, presentation of rheumatoid arthritis is, is, is it's essentially the, um, it's the byproduct of immune dysfunction. So your immune system is quote unquote overactive. That's how it's, how it's generally defined as having an overactive immune system with an overproduction of, of inflammatory cytokine proteins. So the body perceives that there's a problem within a joint and essentially it sends the immune system into, you know, into hypervigilance and then into attack mode to stop whatever that infection might be in the joint where of course there is no infection. And what ends up happening in, in the case of, of joints like the shoulder and the, the hip even more so than the shoulder, there's just not a lot of space in those joints for displacement of uh, soft tissue. So in the case of the hip, my hip filled up with fluid. It filled up with, with white blood cells. And what that ends up doing is it moves the femur uh, out, of the, out of the hip socket and it puts uh, stress on the sciatic nerve. So the sciatic nerve, which is the largest nerve in the body, ends up getting in a position of, of constant um, inflammation. So it's extremely, extremely painful. Just imagine having the biggest nerve in your body just pulled, you know, consistently for, for days on end. Yeah. And I've had sciatic before badly for a long period of time. So I cannot imagine it being coupled with what you're talking about. And, yeah. you know, on the autoimmune thing. So for those listening, you know, the same goes for Hashimoto's, a autoimmune form of thyroid disease. It's the autoimmune system starts attacking that gland, right? Or RA, it starts attacking that area, that joint, that tissue. Um, when they diagnosed you, what, what, I mean, this is what I've heard from a lot of people. It's like, okay, well here, take this pill and see you later. Or, or what did you get? Yeah. I mean, by the time I was diagnosed, I was really, I'd been sick for a long time. And I was at that point had, be, had, was quite overweight and felt like shit all the time. So having a diagnosis was a bit of a relief to a degree. It kind of gave me um, a place to hang my hat and say, okay, there's, there's an explanation as to why I feel like shit all the time. Um, and the, and, and now we've got some sort of, there's, there's, there's a, a path forward, if you will. But it, it, as soon as I started consulting Dr. Google, it became very clear that that path forward was not a very pretty path. I mean, it was one where I, I saw, uh, that I was, or, you know, where I was told that, um, I was going to be eventually wheelchair bound, that I wouldn't be able to, to do all the things that I love doing to be physically active. Um, and that I was going to be on medication for the rest of my life. Uh, and the treatment, um, path forward for me really was, oh, well, there are lots of great meds for this. Don't worry. We can manage the disease. We can manage the disease It's a very manageable disease. And that was the, um, that became sort of the, 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 uh, chorus to my life for a long time. This is a manageable disease. And that's sort of the way I thought for a long time. I, I basically, you know, I, I was like, I, I fell into this victim role where I'm like, why me? I don't deserve this. You know, what have I done to, to deserve this? Blah, blah, blah. Okay. I'll just take the pill. It's not my fault. I'll just do the injection. Yada, yada, yada. And there's something really, um, to a degree, there's something about being a victim. And for me, I mean, I wasn't able to turn my health around until I stopped thinking of myself as a victim. You know, the, the, the last day 
that I thought of myself as a sick person was the last day that I was a sick person. That was the first day that I became a healthy person. I had to really reframe how I thought about health um, in general. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the the the, the initial um, protocol was here. You're gonna we're gonna start with um, the with with Plaquenil, which is a very um, uh, it's a, it's actually an anti-malarial drug. It's a it's a pill that you take. Um, and that's considered or was considered at the time to be the least invasive or the, the, the least um, sort of the, the most conservative approach to treating RA. And then that quickly didn't work. And then we progressed on to to the, the biologic drugs, which are the immunosuppressant drugs. And that's where things really start to get dangerous when, you know, when treating autoimmune dysfunction. And, and why do you say getting dangerous? Just because of the side effects of the drugs and the interactions? Well, I mean, there's that. Um, there's the other problem that what they do is they, they, and, and listen there with degenerative diseases like MS and Crohn's and RA, which oftentimes have very similar, um, underlying issues that are bringing them up. Um, and usually, and are often treated with the same drugs or the same families of drugs. The, 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 what works really well with a lot of these, um, immunosuppressant drugs is they'll, they'll slow down the presentation of acute flare-ups, which will slow down the damage caused by these flare-ups. But what they don't do, obviously, is they don't treat the, the root. And you can still be exacerbating that regardless of whether you're taking one of these pills. And I understand that getting to the um, the behind-the-scenes situation. Yeah, that's the, that's the important part. And you're not getting there if you just... And the, part of the, the other part of the problem is that oftentimes a lot of the drugs that are prescribed for treating the symptoms of an autoimmune dysfunction actually exacerbate the underlying uh, cause of the autoimmune dysfunction. So while they slow down the, the they may slow down the, 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 the symptoms, they might be actually making the, 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 the underlying cause worse. Right. So at what point, um, and I'm sure there's, you know, you went through probably different drugs and this and that, but in terms of changing your paradigm from victim to having a stake in it and being like, all right, well, I'm, I got to jump in here myself as well. When did you start going, okay, what foods do I need to eliminate? Like at what point did you actually go? Because I mean, all these years you've been cooking, you know, every time you eat, you're a mess. So at what point were you finally like, all right, let's look at food and this? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, I, I initially, right off the bat, because my, you know, my grandmother who, who uh, passed away a few years ago, but at, when I was first diagnosed, she's a really important and influential person in my life. And she said to me when I was first diagnosed, she said, you need to look at food. She was like, you have to look at food. Food has got to be related to this. This, There is some correlation between the foods you eat and why this is happening and what um, you know, and, and what we might be able to do to change it through food. And so I go grandma, Yeah, she's, she's pretty rad. I mean, she was, well, for many reasons, she's incredibly rad. Um, but she, uh, you know, she, she really encouraged me, um, she encouraged me to ask questions around food and to really take a deep dive into it. And, uh, I then in turn asked my, my rheumatologist what they thought. And their response was very conventional, very much like, well, listen, there is no, there is no conclusive evidence to suggest that diet causes or can help improve RA. Um, so if you think it makes you feel better to go gluten-free, go off of nightshades, blah, 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 I don't have a problem with it. But don't, you know, don't, don't kid yourself into thinking that this is going to cure your situation. 
Um, and for me, even then, like, I, you know, then I started doing the, the, the basic baseline internet research of like, what should I eat? What is the RA diet? La la la. And all this stuff. And, and I, I tried taking nightshades out of my diet and I tried having, you know, green smoothies all the time. And the reality was I felt like shit and that didn't, that didn't really move the needle at all. Um, the thing that made me feel better was taking a bunch of pain medication and, and getting hopped up on prednisone. Those were the things that made me feel better. Um, so it took a really long time and I didn't actually get to a point of really looking at food and really, really focusing on food until I, until I met a teacher. Um, and also until I nearly died and, and having that near death experience, um, or basically death experience where I pretty much flatlined in the, in the ICU coming back from that gave me a completely different perspective on, on life. And, uh, and that's when I made a, that's when I made a real like serious lifetime decision that I was going to commit to doing anything and everything I could to getting better. Can we talk about your near death experience? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was a, it was a pretty intense experience. I, I, um, had been filming, uh, a cooking show all day. And so I was in front of, um, really bright lights all day. I was pretty exhausted. And by the end of the day, when we were wrapping, I, I was started to, to get this headache. That was a really bad headache. And it just kind of got, went from bad to worse to the point where, um, by seven o'clock, um, I was at home at this point, seven o'clock or eight o'clock at night. I couldn't get off the couch with this debilitating headache and my body just hurt. And it was uh, it, unlike anything I'd ever felt before. And I called my rheumatologist and he said, you really, I mean, at that point, my fever was, I think, 104. He said, you should go to the, go to the emergency room. I'll notify them that you're coming. Um, and I went there and by the time I got to the emergency room, I had to actually take a taxi. Um, and by the time I got there, um, my fever was 106 degrees. Uh, and then it just pretty much, I mean, it stayed at 106 all night in the, in the ICU. So I went kind of, they couldn't bring it down, which is an insanely high fever. I'd never heard of anyone having a fever that high before. Um, and in kind of in the middle of the night while they were trying, I was in an ice bath and wrapped in ice blankets and they're trying to bring it down and, um, get me to, uh, to try and destabilize me. My, my heart slowed down. And in that kind of in that moment, um, I went through this very strange and somewhat spiritual experience that many people who've had near death experiences, um, uh, describe where I felt like I was in, I was in darkness and suddenly it was like being in a well. And then I suddenly was floating up to this ethereal golden light that was just, it was the most peaceful thing I'd ever felt. And I, as I floated towards it, all the noises of the ICU kind of disappeared and I felt more and more at peace. And I got quite close to it when I suddenly had this, you know, this moment of consciousness. And I, I said, you know, I'm not ready to do this. I remember physically telling myself I wasn't ready for it. And I just turned around and started crawling my way back into um, away from that light and back into the noise. And I came back to, you know, to consciousness and the next day, my doctor said, you know, we, we pretty much lost you last night. And then you came back and I said, I remember everything. Wow. And so when I came out of that, I was, it was a real, I mean, that was like a very, very serious wake up call for me. Well, thank God you came back so you can tell us all about this, right? And help others and also live more life. And, and, and for a million other reasons, you're back. Um, so that's when you started. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll say, all right, let's get to it and make life uh, worth living. 
and, and, and in that they never were able to tell me what had happened. I mean, the best that they could, from what they could discern was that I had bacterial meningitis. So, um, I had, I had a bacterial infection in my brain. Um, but they had no way of understanding how that had happened. Um, so the treatment was to put me on broad spectrum IV antibiotics and basically just ruin my gut. Um, and in the process also eradicate whatever bacterial infection there was. Now, in hindsight, looking back, I know exactly what happened. I was suffering from leaky gut syndrome and I had bacteria that passed from my gut into my bloodstream and it got into, it crossed the blood brain barrier and it, and it created an infection in my brain. Um, but you know, that was, and that is for everyone listening and you can Google leaky gut, but that is intestinal permeability where literally crap from your bowels essentially gets right into your bloodstream. And that is not what's supposed to happen. And one thing we do know is that particularly rye, wheat and barley, I think it was Harvard or Yale did a study that said it causes intestinal permeability in all humans. And while I'm on that note, and I'm not sure if you've seen this film, but when your doctors had said, well, you know, hey, look, there's there's no studies about this, but if you want to go gluten-free, like some people, you know, that whole like thing they gave you, well, yeah. you know what? There's a little bit of science on the other end of it, which is paleontologists, when they look at the archaeological record of humans and DNA samples for thousands and thousands of years, what they notice is that rheumatoid arthritis did not come onto the scene and show up in the archaeological record until 10,000 years ago when grains came on the scene. So just saying, everyone. <laughs> and that statistic is from The Perfect Human Diet, the, uh, the documentary on this. So, you know, that's striking to me. Um, and oddly enough, Seamus, just on a thyroid note, you know, when I was doing the research for my book, I was looking like how long, like what's the first recorded incidence of thyroid problems. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was like 12,000 BC or something like that in China. And I'm um, looking up what's happening in China. Then I was, I mean, it's kind of dark comedy, but, uh, at the time it was, um, the emperor, <laughs> the emperor's name was emperor five grains. And I was like, Oh yeah. shit. <laughs> so, so if you Google grains and autoimmunity, almost every single connection comes up. Um, when you started to go down this path of looking at different foods and probably experimenting with elimination and, and research, what was a day when you were like, oh, I don't feel bloated? Like what, you know, what happened when you were like, oh, wait a minute, I'm onto something. Yeah. I mean, it was, so, so I started working with a, uh, with a doctor who practices functional medicine and he was sort of, he was the person that really became my, um, my teacher and, uh, and, and now very, very good friend. And, um, he, he opened me up to this whole world of, of, thinking about the correlation between the myriad decisions we make throughout the course of our life and how that impacts our, our gut and how that can be the root cause of so many different medical conditions. Um, and, and the root cause is a weird word and one that I don't like to, to, I, I love and hate because I, I don't believe there is a single root cause to any, to, or generally speaking with chronic illness, there isn't a root cause. There's, there are many, many different factors that contribute to, to all of the, the, um, the, to, to our condition of health or ill health. And, uh, and it's, I, I like to think of it, you know, if we, we, you can think of it as sort of death by a thousand cuts, but I like to think of it as health by a thousand choices. There are thousands and thousands and millions of, of little mini decisions we make throughout the course of our life that in their aggregate, um, have a huge impact. And so when I started to really look at it from that, uh, perspective, 
and understand that, okay, it's not enough for me to just to cut out gluten and nightshades today and feel great tomorrow. It's I got to cut these things out of my diet. I have to change the way I'm eating and I have to stick with it for a really long time. And for a really long time, I still felt completely terrible. Um, and then I had a moment, probably six months after making radical changes. And that's a long time to go without seeing any progress. Right. So you did six months of super strict on like mouth to anus. Every, you were like, that was six months of real strict stuff going on there. And then you felt, mm-hmm. And then I woke up one day and for the first time in like 11 years, I, I was walking down the stairs in the spiral staircase in my apartment and I got halfway down. And for the first time in 11 years, I was like walking down the stairs like a normal person, not one step after, you know, one step, one step, one step. And, uh, and suddenly I looked down, you know, that was the cue. I'm like, holy shit, it doesn't hurt. And then I looked at my hands. I was like, holy shit, they're not swollen. And then I looked at my feet and I was like, oh my God, they don't, my bones don't feel broken. And I had this, this hallelujah moment of, of suddenly experiencing what it felt like not to be in pain because I had forgotten what it meant to not be in pain. I mean, my, my baseline was craptastic all the time. I was basically, I felt like shit all the time. So, and that's also part of the problem is that when you, when you feel terrible, which I think a lot of people do, they, and they, you don't, they don't really necessarily understand how terrible you feel because you don't have the other the other, you know, the other side of the coin, you don't have the lightness to show the show how dark the darkness is. And that, that happens a lot with, um, hypothyroidism too. When people are kind of, you know, going at this, uh, crappy pace for a long time, it becomes the new normal and they don't even remember or may not have ever known what it was like to feel great ever. So sometimes when they start to feel a little better, they're like, uh, oh my gosh, this is great. This is amazing. I can't believe that I could even get here. And then like, that's not even as far as they can go and how good they can feel. And then it gets better. So there's some amazing stuff that can happen with those levels. Um, when you, when you had that moment, um, or I guess, I, I guess not just at that moment, but in now reflecting and we'll get obviously go through some of the details, but talking earlier about thinking about RA as a manageable disease, do you still look at it that way? Or do you look at it like, no, this thing is zappable. This thing is curable. This thing is keep at bayable. Listen, I think that there are so many factors that, that contribute to our, 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 our health. And I, I look at them in these, I think of health as the, as like, there are three spheres and the intersection of those three spheres in, in a Venn, di- Venn diagram is where your health or your illness lies. And it's a spectrum as well. And those spheres are, are things, some things we don't have that much control over, like our one would be our, our genetics. We can't do a lot about that. Uh, the other is our environment, which we, we can do some things about our, our environment, but we can't control glyphosate in the water, for instance. We can't control the quality of the air we're breathing, et cetera. Um, and then the other one is, our, is behavior, and that's where we can exercise a tremendous amount of control. And, uh, and, and I, you know, in, in that in those areas, once you start to feel in, and, and you do exercise control over the area that you can, you can really, um, you can really make the most impact. And then unfortunately behavior is the hardest one to change too, because human behavior is, we're very set in our ways and we all suffer from something that I call APS, which is Amazon prime syndrome. You know, we want, we want, what we want, we want it now. And 
it's really hard when you when you make a change, whether it's making a, a, a really significant dietary change, you don't see um, any impact. It's very hard to stick with it and say, okay, this is working. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because this is worth staying the course on. Sometimes these things takes a long time. And, you know, there's a great uh, – Peter Osborne wrote a book called No Grain, No Pain, and he talks about how, like, yeah, it might take, you know, 11 days to get gluten out of your intestines or whatever, but that inflammatory response can last up to three months. So think about that, right? You quit You quit something at one point, you got to get a bit more than three, sometimes six. And I love that you gave us a timestamp. Not that it's going to be the same for everybody, but it's something to say, hey – if I haven't even made it there yet, let me be super clean and clear and strict. And again, it's about how quickly or how badly do you want to get better and um, staying the course often, you know, perseverance. When Through this, while you were just, when you were having the moment down the stairs, were you on medication at that point? Oh yeah, I was heavily medicated at that point. I mean, I was on um, immunosuppressants and um, prednisone, pain medication, Um I was also on uh, neurological drugs for for um, uh, for fibromyalgia. Um, in fact, sh- oh, at that point, sorry, sorry, when I had that oh shit moment, no, I was not under. I was not on. I was on some medication. By that point, I had gotten off of probably. Uh, I was down probably sixty or seventy percent from the meds that I had been on before that. And had you been weaning off of them for that during that six months or? Prior to that, okay, and that was intentional. Were you were you going by symptoms, or you were like, let me just kind of knock some things out over time and see, and just wait and see if I need them? Or? Yeah, basically, I was. I, I um, the first thing I did is I stopped taking the biologic drugs. I stopped taking the immunosuppressants, um, and I had gone from. I mean, I when I was on the biologics for a long time, I would get sick at the drop of a hat. Um, Oh, you know, and I, I just realized I didn't answer your question. I meant to answer your question, which is, do I think of RA as being a uh, curable disease or an avoidable disease? And what I wanted to say is that um, it, I, I think that at that intersection of all of those different elements that lead to, to illness, some of us may just have the card stacked against us. I mean, all the, the, the factors may be in place to make it much more likely for us to develop, say, RA, for instance. That doesn't mean we have to develop RA. I think that most autoimmune dysfunction is um, – it, it's not to say it's completely avoidable, but it, it can certainly be um, very, very well mitigated and controlled by planning for it long before it happens. Right. And, and what, how long, um, on all of these different medications, then you start, you know, you're starting to wean yourself off. You have this six month moment of, oh my gosh, my hands aren't swollen. I'm walking down the stairs normally. How long from there did you continue to get off more medications? Do you still take medication? Uh, it took me another six months to get off of, um, I think six months, no, maybe, maybe like nine months. I think it was six months, um, until all of my biological markers for RA were negative. So about a year after starting, um, all of my biomarkers for, for RA were negative, including my rheumatoid factor went from being positive to negative. Um, and when you say that, that means that it would show up looking like mine, someone who's never even had a problem with it, right? Like as if you've never even had it before in your life. Right. Exactly. Right. And I love that because we see that with Hashimoto's antibodies when people quit certain foods and also get into an autoimmune, you know, protocol. Uh, sometimes they have to take it a step further. And 
the drop in antibodies is unbelievable. And I guess for everyone out there, that is the goal, right? I mean, curable or not, the goal is to get these antibodies and markers down to undetectable levels, if possible. And so, so when you're at that point, so you're, you're, do you, I mean, you must be living like in tears of joy every minute of your effing life now. (laughs) The most amazing thing to, to feel like you, I mean, to have almost lost my life and then to suddenly, not suddenly, but to have earned it back. Once, once I earned it back, you know, I was holding on to health with, you know, with both hands. And I, I write about this a lot, this idea that we, we talk about disease being contagious, but I really think that health is even more contagious and it's contagious in, in a variety of ways. And in, in so much as the, the moment I was walking down the stairs, it was my first taste of feeling better. And all I wanted was more, like I just wanted more and more and more. I wanted to feel better and better and better. Um, and, and I did, um, and I continue to, I mean, it's been seven years, you know, I continue to feel better. Um, and, the other the other element that of, of of contagion with health is that it starts to affect the people around you who see a positive change in your life and they start saying, oh, wait, you know, I could probably feel a little bit better. I could probably maybe this is something I, even if there's no I mean, my brother is a great case um, in point. He's someone who is strong as an ox, has never really had any um, any medical issues whatsoever. And he he started following the same dietary protocol that I did and doing all the same sort just to be, to be supportive of me and then realize, wow, I actually feel a lot better and I'm stronger and I'm performing better, you know, in, in martial arts and like everything was, was, um, you know, contributing positively. So it's, there, there's this element of, of positive contagion and, you know, it, it was, incre- it was a sense of really getting my life back. And I think the most important thing which, you know, is, is great for me is it completely changed my relationship with food because I started to look at the foods that, that made me, that I used to really love, but made me feel like shit. I was able to start to associate the, the, the symptomatic response to eating those foods with the foods themselves. And I started to lose interest and gravitate more towards eating the things that made me feel really good. And in doing that, and because my job is to make food taste really good, um, and I do love food very much. I, I really have, have gotten to a point where like, I, you know, I, I love the fact that when I follow how I eat and what works for me, I feel great when I eat. What really illustrates this though, is when I, uh, slip off of it or I'm traveling or, uh, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm not as, as, um, as I hate using the word strict, but as diligent as I like to be, I really start to feel just slightly, you know, slightly off. And it really, I mean, it's, it's very noticeable to me. And sometimes that's, I feel slightly off and sometimes I feel terrible. Like I'll give you an example. I love Szechuan food. I probably will never eat Szechuan food again in my life, but I do love it. And when I, you know, when I eat Szechuan food immediately within, you know, eight hours, I have just the most horrific physical response to it where I get just burning gut. It really hurts. And, uh, and now what are we talking about there though? Let's get into that. Is that like out to restaurant Szechuan food? You don't know what kind of oils are using kind of thing. I mean, yeah. you know, or is it certain spices and thing that are required of Szechuan cooking that you can't handle that combination of spice anymore? Like what is it about 
that. I think it's both. And I I think that like with the Szechuan fruit, for instance, there's, you know, there are, there are a lot of oils that are not, that are, that are pretty highly oxidative toxic oils that are used and they're cooked at very high temperature. And then you Mm -hmm. add a lot of like a huge amount of dried chilies to that oil. And so the oil itself becomes a vector for the, for the capsaicin and for the lectins in the chili. And I think that that, um, that combination is like, for me, a, a perfect storm of disaster. And it causes an, an inflammatory res- response both in my gut and in my body. Right. So let's get into lectins. Um, that has been seen to be a problem with so many people with regards to RA and, and other autoimmune disorders. So you just mentioned part of Szechuan that you believe really screws you up. So is it no for lectins for you? Do you stay away from lentils and things like that? Or if you prepare them in a certain way, is it easier to assimilate? Or are you just like, you know what? No. For me, it's just not, well, it depends on the lectin. I mean, lectins are in everything. So it's, it's really impossible to say have a no lectin diet. But for, for me, like legumes, um, I, I feel okay when I eat um, in the height of summer fresh green beans um, or sugar snap peas. I just don't eat a whole lot of them. And I happen to love them, so I will eat them. Um, uh, tomatoes, I love tomatoes. And I eat, you know, small quantities in the height of summer. I don't, I don't go totally crazy. Um, but I stay away from from pulses, from beans, and 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 uh, and most dried legumes. Even though soaking them and cooking them in a pressure cooker certainly makes them much more digestible. Um, for me, I just one, I don't need that much carbohydrate in my diet, and two, I, I just don't feel great. Like even even if I take um, dried beans and I soak them and re- replace the water several times and cook them in a pressure cooker, um, I still. I still don't feel great. So I don't, I don't see, to me, it's not like there, there isn't a huge upside to, to eating them. So I tend to stay away from, from, uh, from, from those guys. So, so gluten, grains, legumes, um, what are some other antagonizers for you personally? Nightshades, what are some of the things that you're like, you know what, not going to go there. Yeah. So, um, so nightshades, which are, which are mostly fruit, um, from the Americas, things like eggplant and, um, peppers, tomatoes, et cetera. Uh, with, I mean, I love eggplant. I, l- I love all of these foods. Don't get me wrong. Um, I don't, all these vegetables I, I absolutely love peppers when prepared. Well, I absolutely love. So I, I'll eat small quantities of them periodically if with peppers, if they're roasted and, and skinned, um, and, and seeded, um, uh, I'll eat a little, I love spicy chili. So I'll eat a small amount of spicy chilies, but I have to be really conscientious of how much of it. Um, gluten, I, I stay away from, uh, quinoa, I pretty much stay away from. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm also not the kind of person that's, that if, if I'm someone cooks dinner for me and there's a salad and has quinoa and I'm not going to say, Oh yeah, I'm not going to eat this. Um, I, I'm fortunately at a place where for the most part, unless it's like, as, unless I'm sitting down and eating a pizza or go to eating Szechuan food, I'm not going to have like a, a violent physical reaction to it. It's not going to sense- right because your baseline is so now unsensitive and unsensitized, right? And you're not your autoimmune system isn't going crazy. Then you can afford a little nightshade here and there or something. You may not feel great, but it's not going to be a, a blowout or contribute to something that's going to spiral. It'll 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 go away, and that's you know that is that's what I want to impart on everyone too. Going down a path of ancestral living, particularly for health issues, is not a life sentence to never have a bite of bread and brie cheese at a party. Do you know what I mean? It's but but it's you got to get better first and be there for a while before you start 
to take a step back and go experiment with some of the stuff that you know is an antagonizer. So I love that we're having this conversation. And I know you're detailing a lot of this in Real Food Heals, which is your book about this, which is so wonderful. And too, as a chef, to be contributing in this way to our community because with autoimmune diseases are just on the rise and they're rampant. And because we know the environmental and dietary effects on it and you know, looking at what people are eating out there, no wonder it's on the rise. And so um, I, I just want to go back a little bit to, you know, six months, you start to feel, okay, wow, light bulb goes off. Did you say after a year you were done with all the meds or did it take you longer to get off the meds, but you're still feeling good? Like at what point were you like meds are gone? So it it was uh, a year and all of my markers were gone and it was about 18 months, about a year and a half and all of my, I was off all the meds. Excellent. That is, that is really, and I just want to throw that out there because, oh my gosh, that's such a small period of time in the grand scheme of someone's life, isn't it? I mean, I went from being on meds and, you know, large amounts and variety of medication for 11 plus years to, to get off them in 18 months was, 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 um, and I could have gone off earlier too. In fact, I, I, I did, um, with some of the meds and, um, and my doctor, uh, was like, listen, it's actually a shock to your body to try to change your regime that much. I would much prefer we slowly taper you off of of meds. And so I, you know, I, I, I was like, I went to him and said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not taking this anymore. And he's like, you know what, let's just reduce your dosage down to where we eventually get it to where it's basically you're taking nothing. Um, I'd much prefer that you ease into being off of medication. Uh, so that was, you know, I probably could have gotten off earlier, but it was, it really is in the grand scheme of things is it was, and that I think is the goal for most people. And I, you know, when I, when I, talk about my what I've gone through and when I share my story with people the to me the most important thing that I can really share is not any of the content of what I went through I mean I can tell you what worked for me and what didn't work for me and some of that probably will work for most people um, but the most important thing is that I I did this which means that other people can do this too and I'm not unique I'm not like some unicorn freak like this is we can change our health if we are committed to doing it now it doesn't mean that we can necessarily uh reverse every illness but what i love about uh, a a food-based approach to treating uh illness is that there is zero risk it is a zero risk approach that and there's not a single illness out there that will not benefit from a healthier relationship with food it's it's such amazing how food heals, as you describe in your book. I wish, what about spices? Have you noticed that they're saying, because I've talked to people with autoimmune disorders where someone goes, ooh, uh, you know, things high in histamines, like cinnamon is a killer for, for some people. Did you notice that with certain spices or, or flavorings and things like that versus like actual food categories? You know, not so much. And this is, I actually don't cook with spices that much. Um, I use a lot of herbs. I focus more on herbs than on spices. There are some spices I do like to use. Um, you know, I uh, I like the, the um, all the things in the anisette family, so star anise and aniseed and things like that. Um, uh, but for the most part, you know, I I I actually had I like cinnamon a lot. There's a lot of great properties to cinnamon, um, so that's not something that I I react to. Um, but you know going overboard with the seeds can definitely be, um, can, can, can be inflammatory. 
Uh, that's obviously where most lectins, getting back to lectins, are found. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't. I haven't really found for me. I, spices haven't been a huge part of the the. Um, not nearly so much as 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 herbs have been a huge part of my process. What would you say to the people out there right now suffering from RA who do they either they can't walk, you know, they've been told they've got to be in a wheelchair forever, and um, you know, it just seems like you were debilitated for so many years, and now look where you are. I mean. Gosh, you can't give up, people, right? You can't give up. I mean, what would you say to that person? Just, mm, you're such a success story. I love this. I mean, the first thing I would say is that, you know, I know exactly what you're going through, and, it's, and I'm sorry that you're suffering because so many of us have suffered unnecessarily. Um, and most of that suffering is a byproduct of not really understanding, fully understanding the, this, this disease. Um, and like most modern disease, uh, we don't need to suffer from them. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're, we have, um, you know, we're, we're a byproduct of, 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 a, of a culture that has told us and given us very, very, um, very erroneous information for a long time about what constitutes a healthy relationship with food. And in doing that, um, you know, there's, there's culpability, unfortunately. Um, and changing that relationship with food is the first and most important step that anyone can take to walking down the path of, of, of getting, of getting well, um, and reclaiming their health. And it doesn't, you know, what my doctor said to me is exactly what I would say to some, to, to anyone else who's asking me this is that, and he said this to me, he said, work, work on this, change your relationship with food and you will feel better. You'll feel somewhere between five and 95% better. <laughs> yeah, I like it. It's it's going to be somewhat better, and if not, a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and the thing is, is that five. I would have taken five percent, but I got you know ninety five percent. And the only reason I got ninety five percent is because I really, really, really stuck with it. And it was very hard, but the moment that I started to feel better, it became really easy. Then it was just sort of like no brainer. Like I can walk on walls and you know and climb on the ceiling now. Well, right. And then you associate, like you said, there's that association with that thing and then taking the step backward. And once you feel that great after a tragedy of illness for so long and feeling like shit, you know, you're like, I'm not going to eat like that's not worth it. You know, it's it's it, it, it just your brain almost says no, it's trying to save you. It's like, no, no, no you don't want that. Um, it's almost like, you know, I became I used to I grew up eating shellfish and loved it. Um, my dad made lobster all the time. We, I mean, I love shellfish, but then I became allergic to it at some point. And people were like, oh, my God, what a bummer. You can't eat lobster. That sucks. And I was like, actually, though, the thing is, is like I can smell it almost anywhere. It's like it's like my body is like, ew, like I don't create, I don't miss it. I don't, you don't, you don't miss the thing that hurt you. You know, it's like your body has a mechanism that's just primal, right? You know? Yeah. I, I, I love that you bring that up because that's, that's one of the examples that I often use to illustrate the beginning of leaky gut syndrome. Because what often happens with, I mean, you're, you're a case of this. And I know thousands of people who have developed um, a shellfish allergy overnight. They've, they've been fine. And then one day they have a reaction. And generally what happens is that because shellfish have so much bacteria on them and uh, bacteria replicates really, really slowly in very cold, in cold environments. But once you take it out of that environment, it starts replicating really quickly, which is why shrimp um is is one of the most common culprits for for um for uh, uh food poisoning um 
And if you happen to have leaky gut or if you just get an overabundance of bad bacteria from um, from tainted shellfish that you've eaten, uh, it can cause um, overgut permeability. So it goes into the bloodstream and immediately the immune system shuts it down. And that's where you can start to have an, um, an anaphylactic reaction. And the immune system is so smart that the next time that happens, or in your case, even if you smell that, it starts to have this recognition of, wait, this is a, this, this is toxic. And even if the gut has healed again and the next shellfish you eat is not tainted with bad bacteria, your body is still going to react the same way because it remembers. The immune system remembers. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, I don't know where Would you also say then, do you, did you, do you try to stay away from those uh, kinds of shellfish foods or did you at the time because of or, – or that's only what you're saying happens within the allergic situation. It's not something – or are you saying if you have leaky gut, maybe that's something to not mess around with? I, I mean I would think that if you have leaky gut – Try to um, just try to reduce your risk, um, and, and, and so that that meaning, you know, if you're if you're dealing with an autoimmunity and you're trying to heal the gut, try to reduce the reduce the risk, um, and uh, and and um, but you know, I, I love shellfish and I eat shellfish. Um, I don't eat it all that often, but I certainly love it when I eat it. Um, and uh, but I I you know there's always a risk associated with that. And that risk would be higher if there's, um, if, if you're, if you're dealing with over permeability in the gut. Tell us about real food heals a little bit. It was released 2017, but this is the culmination of kind of our discussion. Um, what can we, what can we get from this book? What, what are we going to get out of this? I mean, I think the most important thing, um, to, to that I would like to share in the, in the book is really just that having that, that, that food is about pleasure and it's about joy, and um, we often forget that when we get so hung up on food. This this idea of of food as medicine, I think that's totally fine, um, but don't do that at the expense of of foregoing joy and pleasure in your life because that's incredibly important. And those are incredible, you know, being happy with um, enjoying. A, a delicious meal is one of the healthiest things you can do. It's so good for your immune system. It's good for your brain. It's good for your soul. And, um, and just getting out, you know, cutting out some of the major offenders, um, the things that we know, uh, are, are going to contribute to dysbiosis in the gut, or they're going to contribute to leaky gut, or that are going to be inflammatory, like cutting some of those out. Um, and once you kind of set the groundwork and say, okay, we, I, I get it. Refined sugar is going to be out and grains are going to be out and healthy fats are going to be in and, uh, and fibrous vegetables are going to be in and, and, um, and healthy meat and fish is going to be in. Uh, then like there's, there's so much you can do. I mean, we, in that playground, there's so much you can, you can do, and there's so many delicious dishes that you can create. And so I, I, I like to think of recipes. I mean, I'm a typical chef in so much as I, I write recipes. I can't follow a recipe to save my life. Uh, so, you know, I, I like to think of cookbooks and particularly I hope other people and I love this when people do this with my cookbook too. They see a recipe and they're like, oh, this is great, but you know what? Sunchokes give me gas. So I did the same thing and I used, you know, taro. Right. All these great modifications from, yeah. you know, fans and yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's that's fantastic. And I really, you know, cooking is not cooking is there's there's some alchemy to cooking, but for the most part, it's really craft. Um, it, there's a little bit of science. There's a tiny bit of art, but mostly it's craft. 
And part of craft means being um, uh, reacting to whatever material you have. So if you're, you know, if you're if you're a, a cobbler and you get a particularly, um, you know, I don't know, brittle piece of leather, then you're going to have to think about how what kind of shoe you can make with that leather. So uh, cooking is really about craft and 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 um, and just being improvisational and and really um, just having fun with, with with cooking, I think, is really important. It's the greatest gift that we can that we can give is is giving you know is cooking for someone else. It's such a beautiful gift to give. Someone. It really is, and thank you so much for sharing this story with the world. You're giving so many people hope out there. I'm inspired by you and re-inspired uh, to you know in coaching people that I do. You as an example of the perseverance and that it does take determination. You know, that was the same way with me because see with thyroid hormone, it's the, it's the main one that leads to all the other stuff. So if you have the hormone balance and this over there, it's all caused by that. So basically, you know, it takes a while for the symphony of things to kind of get back in order. Right. And damn, that takes patience. And it's tough. Like you said, we want it. uh, I want an Amazon fucking prime delivered. (laughs) I want wellness prime delivered. And so, you know, but I'm here to tell you just like you that, you know, Seamus and I both have, persevered through these awful things, it is absolutely possible. Um, and it's worth the shot. What do you have to lose, right? Exactly. There is no downside. Right. So SeamusMullen.com, I'll spell that for everyone, although we'll put all of the uh, links to connect with Seamus in our show notes, but it's S-E-A-M-U-S-M-U-L-L-E-N.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we really look forward to spreading this message uh, to everyone out there. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too it's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. A oh yeah, she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time, and, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.